0: like what are the alternatives? Like a lot of people put money into their 401ks. They don't see that money anyway. They already have like the long-term thinking, like they're not touching the money anyway. So if you really don't need the money early, it might be good to, I mean, alternatively dump it into something like a whole life.
1: Hello everyone. I'm Glenn Yaney, your host of The Millionaire Journey. The goal of this podcast is to guide and empower you and journey toward financial independence.
0: Today, my guest is Jack Alwell. Uh, welcome, Jack. Glenn, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor. Yeah, I've really been
1: looking forward to um, this podcast and I follow you on Twitter and, and uh, we had a little conversation before, so going to dig into the, the weeds of uh, your financial life and see how that goes. So, I guess the first question is uh, just tell us a little bit about your financial journey and, and what got you to where you're at today.
0: Sure. So I, I grew up in a very small town, 100 miles north of Detroit in Michigan. Uh, so, so very rural community. But I always liked math and I liked soccer growing up. So when I went to college, I was like, okay, I like math, so I'll probably study math. And then I, I discovered econ and I kind of like that. And my junior year, I took an actuarial science class. It was an interest theory class. It was taught by an actuary. It was a night class. So he was an actuary by day and taught this class at night. And at the time, so I, yeah, so I was a junior and I hadn't really done a great job networking with like, like I was kind of shy. So I didn't really like talking to my professors. And sometimes you kind of, and I was at the University of Michigan. So I was kind of just a number, like big classes and, but this, this professor, he, he made the point that like, as long as you pass the exams, it, that, that's kind of what these insurance companies are looking for. And if you just pass the exams, that's kind of, you don't have to do a lot of like schmoozing with people or networking. And for a shy kid like me, that was very attractive. So sure. I, I, I took, I took the first actuarial exam and then I think I needed to pass I passed two more before I got my first actuarial job in 2013. And that was like in the risk management realm. And it wasn't really till 2016 though, where I I felt like I was more like awake with the decisions I was making. So 2015, I moved down to Charlotte. So I, I knew zero people. I took a different actuary job. I was having trouble balancing, studying for the actuarial exams, doing well at my job job and making new friends. So, and, and I'm, I, I became more social as I got older and and I was, yeah, I, I liked doing, I was going to a lot of events and um, trying to make friends because I didn't know anyone, but I, I had trouble balancing it all. And I ended up getting fired in 2016. <laughs> and when I got fired, I, I mean, th- I could have done a lot of things. I could have, I guess, panicked and just started looking for another job. But I had super cheap housing at the time, luckily, and i had saved up a lot of money. And so I decided to take a trip that was unlike anything I had ever done. And um, I called it my roots trip. So this was when I went to see where my grandparents grew up. And so my grandfather grew up in Krakow. Uh, some of my mom's family grew up in Poland. And then I had some family in Hungary. So I went to like Krakow, Warsaw. I visited Auschwitz, and then oddly enough, um, I actually met my now wife on that trip. But the thing about that trip was, and because I did it solo, it was the first like big trip I did solo, and it gave me a lot of time to think. And I started reading a lot, and this was the first time I started reading like in my life. And and it was it was about World War II um, that I was reading, but th- that's kind of what got me at least interested in reading. Cause when I was younger, I didn't like it at all. I mean, I, I could do math problems for a long time, but the stuff they had us read, I just wasn't interested in. I constantly found myself like asking my dad to like spark, get like spark notes for all these different books that I was supposed to have read. And, um, but that trip really got me loving reading and World War two books turned into soccer books. And then I got into real estate because. Also on that trip, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm paying rent to someone right now. And while I'm lucky that it's a small amount of rent, if I had owned a place and just rented out to someone else and then go on the trip, then I'd be even in a better position. So then I decided as soon as I get another job and can get um, financing and buy a house, I'm going to rent out the room. So in 2017, I bought a house it was a four bed, three and a half bath, and I rented out three of the bedrooms, and that that was my first house hack, and that's kind of how I got into to real estate. And I guess I guess I'll stop there for now. <laughs> that's all.
1: Yeah. thinking, So you were an actuary before you went to Europe, correct?
0: Correct. Yeah, and I, I still ended up getting an actuary job after, so I, yeah. I stuck with it, and I I still do it. Um, small, uh, number of hours now, but, um, it took me like 11 years to pass all the exams.
1: I was, you know, yeah, that's actually what I was thinking when you were talking about it. I was like, do you like an actuary? What, what kind of pay is an actuary? Or if you're okay with talking sure. about it?
0: Yeah, sure. So I, in, tw- so 2013, I got my first actuary job and that was like 60 grand, which I thought was like awesome. Cause I, Cause right out of school, I was making like 40,000 and I actually ended up not. So the, my first job out of college was in Wisconsin. It was, uh, the title was quality assurance. It was kind of like trying to find bugs in the software. It, it was for a medical health records company, T- totally unrelated, but, um, I kept studying cause I had only passed one exam when I left school. So it wasn't super marketable to come because some some kids with sco- the schools that have actuarial programs, some of them graduate college with three, four exams passed. So I, I kind of had to keep passing exams before anyone would even inter- interview me. But um, so, yeah, so 20, yeah, 2013, I was making 60. And then the cool thing about the actuarial programs is typically... You're incentivized by the exams you pass. So each exam, you might get a four, five, six, seven thousand dollar pay rates after each exam pass. So I think after I got let go, and then when I got the the new job in 2017, that's when I hit six figures um, with that one. And then it, and then I I passed a few more exams, and um, once I got, uh, it's called an FSA or Fellowship of The Society of Actuaries. Um, I think I was at around like one thirty at that point.
1: For some reason, I always thought that actuary made two hundred grand no matter what.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm sure. I'm sure the the top ones that have been there a long time make probably much more than that.
1: (laughs) Okay. And so, not to get too much, I guess we can. But the being an actuary. That's for insurance,
0: right? Um, t- well, I would say the majority of actuaries work for insurance companies. So normally it's some sort of risk projection. They're modeling probabilities into the future and often are discounting yeah, the probabilities of future cash flows to some number today. And so like my, my last like full-time role, I was doing valuation on a variable annuity block. Um, so well, I'm basically, describing how the reserves are changing each month, Wow. and uh, yeah, that's 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 what it is. But uh, yeah, m- most actuaries work for insurance companies,
1: and that and that's what you you were working for an insurance company,
0: yep. so, Yeah, so I in the actuarial world, it's at least the way I think of it is it's normally like life and annuities is like one track, and then there's like property and casualty, more like insuring like cars or houses, Th- those are like higher frequency events, but not as high impact as like life insurance. Whereas like, you know, life insurance, is like a one-time catastrophic event. Um, so it's like different types of actuaries. And actually when you're studying to be an act, at least when I was going through the exams, the first five exams were the same, regardless of what type of actuary you wanted to be. But after the first five, you kind of had to pick your track of what you wanted to kind of specialize in.
1: And the, one thing that we did talk about after the podcast was the uh, whole life. And you currently you do you believe in whole life insurance?
0: I like to bank through it. I would not suggest someone necessarily do it just for the death benefit, but yes. it's not like, yeah, um, I I'm kind of, I mean, I have both term and whole life. Yeah. Um, I think if you're, if you're just interested in the death benefit, go for the term. Yeah. Um, but I, I, after reading, um, it's, uh, his name's, I'm wondering it, if I can, if I have the, I book. Can't oh, remember it's, the name. yeah, it's, it's R. Nelson Nash. The book is called Becoming Your Own Banker. Yes, um, that, that book really changed my views on um, just like using whole life in a different way. Because the, the way they're using it is it's, it's just another asset to borrow from. And mm-hmm. the reason I got into real estate after... And one of the books that really influenced uh, me getting into real estate was this book. And it's totally unrelated. Shortest History of Germany. And they go through the Weimar hyperinflation. And what I learned from that book was that the people that were least affected by that Weimar hyperinflation were the super poor people because they had no savings. They were, I mean, like if you're living on the street, does it really matter the value of like a dollar? Like not really. But And then the other people that were least affected were the people that owned real things. So... I mean, the, the playbook is you, you buy real assets and then with the inevitable inflation over time, you can just borrow against those assets. And that's, that's the same way the whole life policies work. It's just that the, I would describe it. So like on your house, the crediting mechanism Mm -hmm. is whatever the real estate market is for that house. So that, that kind of like fluctuates and. I would say is more unstable than like a whole life policy where the crediting mechanism is a stable, maybe 4% or like 6% though with the dividends. Um, and it's stable and that, that 4% is guaran- guaranteed by law. So if you have a long enough time horizon, I mean, it's that they're really quite good. And if you have, if you know someone that can set it up properly, you can yeah. have access to a lot of cash value early on. Um, but you, you really need to know someone that sets them up regularly.
1: Yeah, because I've actually looked, and I know we've talked about this a little bit, but I figured we'd talk about it more because I, I was thinking, you know, you being an actuary, I mean, I feel like you you already kind of know the ins and outs of insurance. and, and I the the hardest part that i see with it is the um take them it's like almost like and i understand that it's not quite as in, like an investment but at the same time you take the initial loss so you so you take we'll just say the premium and i guess we're not really getting into the weeds of what infinite banking is uh but we'll just there's many podcasts on it but i would just like to talk into the fact that if the premium is like say ten thousand, and in the first year, and then on a good policy, would it? Would you say it would be between seventy and fifty percent? Fifty to seventy percent would be cash value.
0: So normally, if you get them off the shelf, I mean, you might have zero cash value yeah. that first year. But if yeah. you go through a mutual insurance company and you have yeah. someone that knows how to set up. I I think the first one that I set up properly, and I say that because I set up one improperly where, where I, I did, I think I, I, the first one I tried, I, I, it was like a $6,000 premium a year and I I barely had access to any of it the first year. But the, the second, the second policy I found someone that knew what they were doing, um, And I think I had 80 up to, it was like 80%. So I, I, and I, I, yeah, I I think that that's what it was about 80%. And I mean, basically what's happening or the best way I've heard it described is the person that's setting it up is essentially taking a cut on their commission.
1: Yeah.
0: So, so normally the agents that sell these policies are getting a huge commission. Sometimes it's more than a hundred percent of that first year premium. And what's happening is the people that are helping people set up these infant banking policies is they're taking a huge cut to that first year commission. And, and in doing so, you have access to more cash. So that's, that's the best way I've heard it described. Um,
1: yeah. So then would you, would you say that knowing what you know now today, would that be something you would have, you, you're glad that you started it and went Went through with it.
0: I'm not only, I, I wish I would have done more earlier. Yeah. And and this is coming from, and another thing is, well, what's the, like, what are the alternatives? Like a lot of people put money into their 401ks. They don't see that money anyway. Yeah. Um, they're, 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 they already have like the long-term thinking, like they're not touching the money anyway. So if you really don't need the money early, it might be good to, I mean alternatively dump it into something like a whole life and um and we are now setting up one for my wife who um w- this will be her first policy and we'll we'll do one for her also. Well, wow. yeah, and I uh, and I've been
1: so close to doing one. I've had like three instances where I was just like just so close but you know, the, the uh, for me it's you know we buy real estate and kind of like what you're saying you're borrowing against real estate but obviously there's there's risks of that you know the value of the real estate going down to a life policy that uh, kind of maintains a three to four percent growth depending on the i know they they're they very uh based on it but uh i've done a ton of research on it but you're you're the first person that i think i found that isn't selling life insurance <laughs> that, uh, that actually benefits from it. So I, you know, I've always been interested in it and, uh, you know, now we're pretty much tying up all our money into the, the deals cause you know, they're starting to flow, but it's good to hear, um, uh, you know, kind of an unbiased person that doesn't have anything to gain from anybody else benefiting it. So, yeah. So, um, I guess tell us a little bit about your uh, your investments and and how you got to. So you bought the the house hack the first one was a it, was a four bedroom or three bedroom.
0: Yeah, it was a four bedroom in twenty seventeen, and that's when just getting like my feet wet with that. It's you know landlording like one hundred and one kind of on training wheels with uh, you know showing the tenant the property. Uh, I updated some of the, well, all the rooms with like individual locks to make people feel better. Um, and I mean, that, that house was really cool. It had a, it has a pool in the back. So I thought that would be good for renters. Uh, but at that time, that year, I really started listening to bigger pockets and, uh, just listening to a lot of different strategies. And I always, you know, I kind of used to, Think, um, you know, you needed, you needed the cash before you invest. Like it really dawned on me that I could try to find a way where I need very little money. And there was one story from a bigger pockets guest that really stood out to me. I wish I remembered the guy's name, but he was just cold calling these people and just like asking them to sell. And he kept like this little booklet. And just like very old school, so like I remember I took that idea, and I thought I was looking in some markets, and I was living in North Carolina at the time, but I looked back up where I grew up in Michigan, and it seemed like the rent ratios were a little better for yeah. cash flow so um, i I ended up cold calling property managers just to see if any of their clients were looking to like offload for any reason, and it took me probably. Two months of cold calling, like rotating. Um, and I think there was like three or four property managers I was kind of like calling and keeping in touch with. But all of a sudden, one property manager called me back and said, you know, I have this, this couple, they're going through a divorce. They have four properties. Um, they, they might be interested in selling. Um, so I reached out to them and we, we got talking. There was one property that was like almost, uh, like a subtraction to the value. It was a very poor area, and so so we basically cut. We we basically said we would just let the person that was renting that one house just buy it for like a dollar, and then I would get, and I and they originally wanted like a hundred grand, but I, I'm in North Carolina, and I said, well, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I can't come and view the properties, but I can give you like sixty grand. What do you think? And they actually said yes. The, the, the three, and there's three properties. There was two single families and a three unit. The rents at the time totaled a little over two thousand dollars a month. So they were totally rented. Um, and they, they three were three properties. different cities for for the three properties. Yep. Um. So that that was my and I tried to get traditional financing. Um, I don't know if I, if I would have tried harder, I would have been able to, but I felt like I was having trouble and my, um, agent luckily kind of said, well, you know, they might be open to seller financing. So I said, okay, I, I didn't really, I mean, I, I, I got the idea, but I, I had never heard of someone doing it at that time, but basically they wanted $20,000 down and they would finance the other 40 thousand at 6%, which was high at the time, but it was a great deal. And then I raised actually 15 grand from my brother and a friend for, and then I, I was in for five grand on the down payment. Um, And, and actually with all the tax credits and rent, I, I think I only was like out of pocket, like, like, like a grand and a half at the closing. So that was like awesome. And yeah, that, that was my like, first swore and uh, like acquiring properties. Um, and then once I had those, and and at the, at the time I was still studying for the actuarial exams. And because I was spending so much time studying, I, I didn't really have time to think about how to invest outside. But I basically sent over a lot of extra money to, to the principal pay down because I figured I might as well lock in that's 6% because that was a lot higher than I was would get anywhere else. And it was like guaranteed, based, you know. So okay. I, I just kept studying hard and paying down. And I ended up paying off those properties within two years. And then, of course, it was easier for me to get traditional financing, which is how I got um, in 2021 is when I bought the last set of properties. And I actually, and, and this was when I had one of my aha moments with like my 401k, Whereas like I'm not this 401k is not helping my life right now. And like if if I just pay the 10% penalty and then buy this seven unit that is in my mind grossly undervalued, like I, I'm I'm like break-even like at most like a half a year. And then it's like gravy after that. And for for that seven unit, I got that for two fifty-nine thousand. And the rents at the time were 2800 a month and we, we've now gotten those up to 4100 a month um so that was 2021 the then the prices really started going crazy and then I kind of looked away from the rentals and now I've started uh just flipping raw land for the meantime but wow. yeah, that, that, that's that, that's where I am on my my real estate front
1: that's awesome so I, I know that um The the, the two common things that I see with some successful, very successful investors in real estate uh, is one would be the house hacking, which obviously you completely reduce your overhead. Like it could probably be cut in half by doing something like that. And then the other thing that um, is uh, creative financing. You know, there's some people that I know that did the same exact thing that you're doing they, it just, when you can learn how not to use the banks, it becomes a lot easier. And then when the banks are, you know, throwing money around with low interest rates and you can utilize it, but until then it's like, it it helps to be able to go outside the banks uh, to uh, really, to make some deals happen, just like you did. That's awesome. So, uh, so flipping land, so tell tell how many how many deals have you done, or what what what's happened with that?
0: I think I've completed now about I want to say a a dozen parcels. I, I I group them in parcels, I guess. Wow. Um, but 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 it, it, very tiny. We're talking like acre, two acre, and these are these are in the middle of the desert, Arizona. These wow. are mostly by Petrified Forest National Park, and I kind of stumbled on. This area, I, I took a land flipping class like a year and a half ago. And one of the recommendations was just go where the other investors are. And after some research, there's a lot of people like in this Apache County area. Um, but a, a lot of these, you, you can get like an acre just to give you a feel, like an acre might retail for like $4,000. So wow. it's really just in the middle of nowhere. But the... the the gist of that is, uh, there's a mailing system that we use and we mail to out of state owners offering what we think is about a, a quarter on the dollar. And, um, the thought is you'd get like, you know, 1% of the people to accept the deal. And then you can either turn it around and flip it to another wholesaler for like 50 cents on the dollar or try to sell it to retail either for cash or on like a terms deal where you're basically the bank and uh, seller financing to them. Cause some of these people don't necessarily have the cash available.
1: So with those um, was it like a software that you bought to um, filter through all the websites and stuff to be able to search for the, the vacant land and the owners?
0: So we use a, a, a website called Datatree and uh-huh. you can, you can search, um, the different like zoning and you can search for just, you, and you can do all sorts of queries and filters. So like, for example, like I filter out, um, so when I'm mailing for Apache County owners, I'm taking out the Arizona owners. So I'm only mailing to the out-of- state owners and the thought is that um, they're probably they're probably less connected to the land yeah. um, I, I think theoretically you could do some sort of search on like delinquent taxes which you'd probably be even more likely but it would cut down your list a lot so I, I don't really filter on that but and you can also I also cut out um, like uh, company owned so I'm only mailing to individuals.
1: Yeah, so I, the reason why I ask is that we had this. My friend had this this uh, software that filtered through like whatever you wanted, just like what you're talking about. You could find vacant land. We were looking for this is before I really got into mobile home parks, and we were looking for single lot mobile homes ah. to uh, flip. And uh, I mean. <laughs> At the time, the, the mobile homes were listed for, like, they were, like, the market price was, like, $150,000. And we were thinking maybe 150000 So we were thinking that we would buy them for five to $10,000. And we we did all these mailers, and all these, owners called us back, letting us know that we were running. <laughs> just reminded me of what you were talking about with the, uh, that, that, uh, search, but that's cool to do, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're more successful than I was finding deals doing that.
0: It's uh, right now. I'd say it, it seems to be cooling off a little bit. I think people yeah. are getting a little more tight with their, at least on the uh, in terms of me selling them. But uh, yeah. buying right now, it's uh, it seems to be okay. But yeah, it's a, it's a little harder to sell to retail right now. It seems.
1: Yeah, I'd imagine with well, I know with, obviously not to compare it to 2008 because it's not quite the same. But when interest rates go up, value land values go down. So I think yeah, that yeah. Um, now is the time to uh, really look for those deals mm-hmm. to uh, maybe not in the desert and maybe closer <laughs> to urban, like urban areas. Because mm-hmm. this one guy, I uh, sold my I sold a townhome to. He was flipping land and he was buying for like. 5,000, selling for 50,000 type stock in the middle of the recession. But it was because he was looking for vacant lots in uh, certain areas. But I think the land play would be probably maybe you get to more of a desired area because I think this the time when people are unloading because uh, land values have to be going down with high, higher interest rates, I would say. So there's uh, less building. Yeah. If there's less construction, mm-hmm. there's less you know, there's less uh, value in the land, so. Yep. But uh, yeah. So uh, now today, you're you're flipping land, and uh, and you said you do actuary work on the side, or.
0: So I've I've just been doing like a small like contract a got like contract to do this audit for uh, the Utah State Insurance Commissioner. Um yeah. So I'm doing that like just very part time, like ten hours a week. Um, nothing crazy. And then spending, yeah, a lot of time, uh, like podcasting, YouTubing, having awesome. fun conversations like this. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, the, uh, I was doing a little bit of research. Uh, you have a, you have a podcast that you review books. Is it mainly financial books or?
0: So the, yeah. So during COVID, my brother and I started a podcast called the brothers on books podcast. And it's, uh, it's just like kind of like a fun hobby, passion project. It is, we, we do some finance type books, um, but we also do, it kind of runs the gamut. It's, uh, it's kind of whatever we're feeling like. Uh, we've done a lot of like social issues, um, a lot of, like, actually a lot of geography type books and social science books, um, but occasionally we'll do a personal finance book.
1: So we'll, we'll uh, leave the link below for that, and then uh, you also have your podcast that I was on, and, and what is that podcast called?
0: I honestly don't really have a, a name for it. It's just, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you search my name on YouTube, you'll, you'll see it, but I, I, I don't have an official name. I guess it's just Jack Allwell on YouTube. <laughs> awesome, so Let's talk about that, because I, I that is really kind of one of the things that inspired me to
1: start, and I really enjoyed it, and uh, I still watch uh, your stuff and follow it, and uh, to, to, if you could, just tell me one thing that you've learned that uh, from from interviewing all these, uh, I guess, professional, you know, what is it? Financially independent people, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started... So it's it was kind of funny, because I discovered Twitter... Um, like back in I think May or June, I never really used it, but I, I when I went on it, I was like, wow, there's a lot of people that talk like personal finance, and I, I kind of like these conversations. And the more I started hanging out, I was thinking, man, if I could interview these people, maybe that that would be fun and uh, get get to meet these people. Um, but I, I've gotten yeah, I got to meet a lot of cool people in real estate, creative finance. Um, a lot of options, people, and I'm trying to think. So, because like one one of my questions at the end of my my show is like, what's the best and worst personal finance advice you've heard or received? And I'm I'm uh, thinking back. Uh, a lot of the common ones. Um, some of the myths are like invest in what you know. Uh, some people say, uh, you know, you should invest in what you know, but. A lot of people are saying that's the worst advice they've heard in the sense that you need to put real money into things so that you learn. And even if you don't know anything in the beginning, if you just put a little money, you'll start paying attention. And that's how you get the knowledge and experience to take you know, bigger chunks of your money and invest them in certain places. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of been a cool thing. And I, it actually inspired me to, I I started looking into the Forex market. I I knew very little, I I knew, I knew very, knew very little about Forex and apparently it's huge outside of the U S but like in the U S we're very like stock, uh, centric, but outside of the U S uh, Forex is very popular and it's like the most liquid market on the planet. Um, so I feel like I, I've at least I only put deposited and the cool thing about Forex is you can uh bet very small dollar amounts. Like I, I deposited fifty dollars initially into my account, and you can bet like 50 cents to win like a dollar fifty. And and I I find that now I I open up uh like a Forex calendar, it shows what you know, central banks are releasing what information and what reports are coming out, and I just feel like I'm a little bit more in touch with what. The rest of the world is going through, and so I, I, I have like that idea that uh, don't be afraid to just get started, even if you know nothing.
1: So, uh, I mean, I know just enough to get in trouble. What, what if, if you could, in I guess your own words, uh, what is forex?
0: So, okay, so forex, uh, sorry, is short for foreign exchange. And, foreign exchange. Uh, so it's currency. Yes. Currency. So the, like the major, or at least what I've been told are the major currencies are like the U S dollar, British pound, Euro, Japanese yen, Swiss franc, Aussie dollar. So you can basically trade those pairs. So you're always trading a pair. So it's always like, uh, you know, the U S dollar versus the euro, or the U S dollar versus the pound or Canadian dollar versus the yen. And all these different pairs have slightly different characteristics that you start to learn about. Um, and it's uh, kind of driven by the employment numbers in each country and how the central banks are altering the interest rates.
1: Yeah. It sounds complicated to me.
0: I'm lucky. I only deposited $50 in this account. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: uh, I guess I like the two questions. I have two questions that I think I'm going to ask. That I'm going to ask all my guests. You're my second guest, so we'll we'll just run with it. I'll ask all my Go. guests this question. But uh, the first question is, um, what's your worst financial mistake that you've ever made?
0: Um, that's a good one. Um, I would say. There's that saying, like, uh, if you show me what you spend money on, I'll show you what you value. And I think throughout, I mean, even up to recently, I've spent probably too much money eating out, um, just in general. Um, and recently I've, I feel like the more I've learned to cook, um, and be exposed to what my wife cooks and how like healthy some of the stuff is. And it tastes better. And it's just like so much cheaper. It kind of pains me to think of how much money I've spent eating out, um, and I. But I, I guess I don't know. I don't know if I really regret it per se, because in uh, earlier years I used to see it as very relaxing, and sometimes I would just go to a restaurant even by myself if I had a book, and I would just, yeah. you know. But then th- those tips really add up. So
1: yeah, I feel like. When I made less money, I went out to eat more. And now that I make more money, I never <laughs> want to eat out. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's funny how that works.
1: <laughs> so uh, one other question, this one might be somewhat difficult, but what what uh, uh, byproduct have you received through being financially independent that you didn't expect or that you received through being financially independent that you weren't planning on?
0: Um, I think I I just remember being very like, like physically tense at my nine to five, especially when I was, uh, just sitting in a cubicle all day. And even when I was working from home, when you're on someone else's schedule, I just, I felt kind of like, you don't really feel you're not in control of your time and you don't mm-hmm. really know. You don't, I didn't think I really understood it until I was out of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, honestly, I, for the, for the, I noticed it a little bit when actually when I was fired, that it was it was kind of a blessing in disguise because I felt just like so much lighter, like just not tense. And that's like one thing that's been a byproduct that I really wasn't expecting. I just feel healthier.
1: Yeah, I I can relate. And I think for me, it's, it's one of those things that uh, once you get a taste, you never want to go back. Yeah, I'll take a big time reduction before I have to go back to the uh, the office cubicle soon. Yeah, but uh, I guess uh, we're gonna give all your uh, contact information, uh, where you can find Jack below. Uh, He's got uh, two podcasts, and uh, and uh, we appreciate you being on. Thanks so much, Glenn. It's been it's been a pleasure. All right, make sure you like and subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.